The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. This morning we're reading from Philippians 2, 1-11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Descends the reading of God's word. Thank you, Jackie. And Doug's right, I am kind of a provoker. Uh, I tend to poke and prod and cause challenge, right, Doug? Yeah, this was my, I have three brothers. That's kind of where I fell in in the pack. You know, you got to find your role in the world and just lean into it, right? That's your strength. You just got to gotta go for it. Uh, today we find ourselves in a wonderful little letter uh, written by Paul. Uh, and this sermon actually was adapted from our youth retreat this year. So uh, CRC has hosted youth retreat out in Ocean City, uh, where we talked about joy. And we actually went through the entire book uh, or letter of Philippians and, and really all from the outlook and perspective of joy. There are a lot of things that you could take interest in as you read this letter. Um, and joy is one. It's a, it's a theme throughout this letter. And uh, what I want to do is grab onto that theme today and, and take a look uh, at what Paul is directing our attention to as the source of joy. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray for us and pray for our time this morning. Our gracious Father, I uh, come to you now. We come to you now. Uh, we acknowledge that uh, our hearts might be in turmoil. Uh, they might be hurting. They might be struggling. Uh, we might be tempted with sin. Uh, I acknowledge, Father, that there are some here who are suffering greatly. Uh, those who are feeling alone or isolated. Those who are suffering because of illness, because of loss. Uh, Father, there are some of us here who are proud and who are feeling great. <laughs> we feel filled uh, and, and perhaps joyful in our own ways and, and clinging to our own things. Lord, we ask that this would be a time where we're open to hear your word, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, and that your spirit would show us the beauty and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Well, allow me to open by just asking a question. Are you a joyful person? A good litmus test for that is, would your boss describe you as joyful? 
Husbands and wives, would your spouse describe you as being joyful? Kids, I don't want to leave you out. Would your parents describe you as being joyful? Would your teachers describe, I see you smiling out there. Would your teachers describe you as being joyful? Now, some of you, your, your gut reaction might be, yeah, of course, that's who I am. I'm a joyful person. I, you know, I smile and things like that. Or perhaps it's more like, no, 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 that's not me, but, but come on. Like, if you knew the foolish people that I have to deal with every single day, you'd understand why I'm not joyful. You'd get it. If you knew the fools I had to deal with in this world, the lot that I had been given, you look around at my, my family or my boss or friends, or my pastor, ooh. You'd know, you'd know why I'm so cranky all the time. But maybe before I even ask this question, I think it's appropriate for us, us to think about what does it look like to have joy, to be joyful? Is it, does it mean that you're happy all the time? Is it, does it mean that you carry a big smile with you everywhere you go? No, I think happiness can actually be a mask where we're trying to hide behind it in fear. We're, we're trying to not be known by others. So we put this smile mask on us to avoid having to actually share who we really are and what we're really experiencing. And, and, and I'll, I'll add that isn't it true that, that instead of joy, we, we actually find life to be really hard sometimes. And, and, and in a response to that, I'll, I'll confess my, my own sin in this and my own part in this. What we do when we don't find joy, we, we kind of try to grab onto things all around us. We try to acquire things. We try to buy more things. Or, or we find it in sex or, or in travel or in observing other people's lives. Distractions or people. But none of these things can actually provide lasting joy. And yet we all want it. We all want to be joyful. Of course, we want to be happy, but, but we want something more than that. We want something that will actually last. We want our contentment and our satisfaction in life to last and to be anchored in something that's safe and secure. Passing moments of happiness and pleasure, they're great. But wouldn't it be nice, nice if life wasn't simply like a wave in the ocean being blown and, and, and being tossed back and forth by the wind, up and down like a roller coaster ride. Friends, Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, reminds us, encourages us, challenges us that that, that life is available, that, that joy is available to us. So let me ask, where do you find joy? And, and to help you give categories to what that is, is it something that is actually lasting and sure and secure? Or is it something that will pass in a moment? It'll be gone. Because if it disappears after you experience that, that great feeling inside of you, it's not joy. Which means you're going to be left empty. So, so allow me to just say it very simply. True joy comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this joy actually frees us to humbly submit to and serve God and to submit to and serve one another. So Paul actually links this with a very key theme that's all the way through the book and all the way through the letter. He says, if you have the mind of Christ, you will actually be living in true joy. 
So we're going we're gonna, to, this is the framework for how we're going to walk through this today. It's the search for joy, which is going to be found in verses 1 through 5. The source of joy, which is going to be found in verse 6, which is a little bit of a hinge verse here. And then the invitation to joy, which is verses 7 to 11. So that's the search for joy, the source of joy, and an invitation to joy. So look with me again at verses 1 to 5, and I'm going to read those. Just because if you're anything like me, I kind of need that constant reminder. So Paul writes this. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then this is the real, the real kicker. He says, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So what does this tell us? Yeah, so Paul is actually acknowledging, so if, if you're not a Christian and you're hearing these things, I suspect that you, you, know, you might have your own challenges or controversy in your head about Christianity and about God and Jesus. Uh, but I think what he's actually acknowledging is a human reality, something that we all come to experience and know. What so many different people of all different kinds of, of religions, races, and creeds have actually known for centuries. And, and I'll, I'll highlight this. There's this Atlantic article, and the title was this. He said, it, says, it said like this. Okay, you ready? He said, and I, when I heard this, I was like, I know the answer to this question. Maybe you'll say the same thing. But the title was this. Why aren't smart people happy? Why aren't smart people happy? And I read that and I was like, I already know the answer to this. I'm not a smart person. So I, I can right away connect with, with the theme of this. I'm like, I, I like this. I'm a, I'm, that's, that's why I'm so happy is I'm not a smart person. I got it figured out. And, and you know, I, I'll, I'll confess, I, I tend to be like a title person. So if I can read the title and get the gist, I'll just walk away. Now, I will say I did read this article. But what it came down to it, is that, that when you're happiness or the the deeper sense of joy that you find in your life is linked to something that you have built yourself intellect academic prowess it's a something that can come and go quickly and, and joy is not going to be born out of self selfish pursuits or, or intellectual greatness it doesn't bring joy to life and with this article, it, mind you, a very a secular article, not a Christian article at, at its very heart, the, the very basis of it, the premise was that if you build your life on these kinds of things, you will not find joy in them. When your academic, in, your, your greatness or your intelligence is the foundation of your happiness, you will not find joy. It's not something that's built to last. And I can assure you, if you're a Christian or you're not, you are building your happiness, your joy on your greatness. You are. This is what we do. And so when something goes wrong, when we meet that person who's smarter than us, I've met many, who's stronger or faster or just better, everything comes crashing down. Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama wrote a book called The Book of Joy. 
And in it, they, they say this. They say, sadly, many of the things that undermine our joy and happiness, we create ourselves. Sadly, many of the things that undermine our joy and happiness, we create ourselves. Often it comes from the negative tendencies of the mind. You see, our attitude, our attitude matters. How we think and feel about our, ourselves and our situation is critical to how we see our own lives and, and consequently how we live our lives and how we treat the people that are around us. As a matter of fact, the word mind, and so we're going we're gonna to get down in here into the nitty gritty of what Paul is saying. The word mind that Paul uses in verse 5 is used to describe your gut, your heart attitude. It's not merely an intellectual thing. He's not, he's not abstracting it and saying, like, you've got to think these good things. There, there's a sense where that's true. But what he's getting, he's getting at it's something even deeper that's in us, that's motivating us. What is your gut? What is your heart attitude toward this and toward life? As a matter, so parents out there, I, 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 one line, one theme that I heard many times when I was young, and parents, perhaps you found yourself saying this to your children. Are you ready for the line? Change your attitude. You better change your attitude. How, how many times did I hear that line? I can't even count it. How many times have I said it? I don't want to admit. Because it is the least effective line that there ever was, right? You know I mean, it, is, it, it has no power. All you're feeling in that moment is a command, and you're already angry, right? So you're already having feelings. So when someone tells you to change your attitude, it's, it's just making things worse. And yet I've said it to my kids. I, I'll confess up front, in front of all of you. Change your attitude. We this isn't just something that you do in a second. It's not just a, a, a muscle and all of a sudden you can just become joyful or become a cheerful participant in family activities or stop stomping your feet, hitting your brother, yelling and screaming. It's not something you just muscle through. What Paul is talking about is a very like heart, a heart bent, an attitude that is within us. And he's saying if you think and believe negatively, you're going to experience this same kind of negativity. You're going to see that as the outflow of your life. Actually, uh, Desmond Tutu and Dalai Lama, they, they continue on and they, they engage this idea. They say, if you have joy, then when difficulty comes, you will have some distress, but you're going to recover quickly. And they, they say, if your, your health is strong, when viruses come, they're, they're not going to make you sick. If your health is weak, even a small virus can take you down. When you have distress, but you have joy, you can recover quicker and you can navigate through these things. If you don't have joy, then small problems are going to cause you greater pain and greater suffering. You'll be full of fear and worry, full of sadness and despair and full of anger and aggravation. And what's at the heart of this? So much of, so much of our sorrow today comes from the expectations about what we're told our lives should be and even what we tell our lives, uh, tell us, tell ourselves what our lives should be. This is, what, this is what Paul is confronting head on. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or selfish empty conceit. Nothing. Yet what we want to believe, what we're convinced to believe that it, is that in order to have joy, we actually must do everything from selfish ambition. 
We're convinced of the exact opposite. So if we have needs, we satisfy them. If we have desires, we chase them down. If we have inhibitions, then we ignore them. If we have lust, we satisfy it. You see, selfishness has us pursuing passing happiness, fleeting happiness. But, but we know from life, we know from research, we know from all of human experience that this doesn't work. And what Paul tells us is if you obsess about yourself, you can't have joy. This, and, and, I mean, this is the reality that we live into in this world now. We spend so much time on social media and phones looking at other people's lives and trying to understand how our lives need to reflect those things. And it destroys us. Because actually by looking out like that, we're really just looking in. We're, we're looking inward, continually comparing ourselves to the world around us. And this is an at least part why we're feeling disappointed or constantly disappointed, hurt and offended by difficulty and even other people's disappointment in us. You see, we're trying to fill that hole in us with passing happiness instead of lasting joy. Actually, C.S. Lewis, when he was meditating on these things, he said, he said this, he was, he was thinking this and he said, you know, isn't it true or doesn't it seem true that all the pleasures that we experience in life are just the substitute for real joy? All of the things that we're grabbing onto in this world, aren't they just a substitute for the real joy? To put it another way, I think Paul is pointing out that we are actually fragile. Our minds are fragile. And that's why he's calling us to have the mind of Christ. This is why Paul directs our attention so quickly to Jesus. Jesus' life is to be the basic posture and the basic pattern of our thinking. He says, have this mind, the mind of Jesus, among yourselves. Not, not a mind of self-obsession and self-satisfaction, but a mind of self-sacrifice. You see, the gut of Jesus, the heart attitude of Jesus is actually joy. Because he is the source of joy. Which brings me to my next point. So the next point is rooted in verse 6. And, and, and we're, this, the next one is called the source of joy. And, and Paul writes this. He says, who, referring to Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Let me be very clear in and concrete on this. And I, I'll, I'll confess, I, I think that for you that are Christians out there or have been going to church for a long time, you're kind of like, this is a sort of basic and remedial kind of question, Chris. Why are we even talking about this? I think it's because Paul acknowledges the reality that we need to be renewed in this and be reminded of these things. And, and for those of you who don't believe, who are, who are not Christians... This is a very significant thing. The, the historical person named Jesus Christ, he's someone that you must deal with and cannot ignore. Hear, hear this. He, he is not somebody that you can ignore. There's evidence of him doing amazing things, miracles, multiple confirmed accounts in history. The greatest accomplishment of Jesus and what solidified his great following was his resurrection. He rose from the dead, where he, he publicly died on a cross 
and he was buried in a tomb, and he came back to life and rose from the dead. And then many people, thousands of people, saw him alive after he died. Do we, do we, can we possibly embrace, accept, believe how, how wild this is? This is unbelievable. Someone rose from the dead. We can't just gloss over that. This is, we're saying a pretty crazy thing, and Paul is reminding us of this thing. And all of this, all of these details about Jesus of Nazareth, are recorded in reliable historical manuscripts, which we have more evidence for the truthfulness of than any other historical document. So, so when Paul writes, this man, Jesus, is God, he is making a very substantive claim. It's not flimsy. It's not weak. It's not thin. What he's saying is that the object of the faith the Christian faith is, is certain, is resolute. He's saying, find your joy in something, in someone real and true and anchored in reality. Someone, something with substance and weight. Something that isn't created. Not your kids, not your stuff, not your wealth, not your worth, not your merit. You see, this man, Jesus, claimed to be God. His followers believed him to be God. In Paul's words, who's a follower of Jesus, he, he is the very form of God, which means he is the same nature as God. He's not different than God. He is God. He's equal to him. And therefore, they are the same. He is the God who created all things, who sustains all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power. And guess what? And guess what? This God who made you, he loves you and he's here for you now. Therefore, it's appropriate for me and for us to link this to acknowledging him as a source of all joy. And let me, let me just say, if you don't see God as someone who's full of joy, then you're really missing the biblical picture. If you see God as some mean, tyrannical monster judging you, bringing down the weight of judgment, of law on you, then you're missing the biblical picture. If you see God as, as perhaps by your own experience, as some distant father who doesn't care about your life, then you're missing the biblical picture. It's just not true. The God of the Bible exudes joy. He exudes a satisfying, sweet, and enduring contentment. Now, as I, as I was thinking about stories of Jesus in the New Testament, one in particular jumped out at me, and it's a, it's a common story and, and perhaps one that you've heard before, about the woman at the well. And now, what's particularly unique about this story is that Jesus is engaging someone he's not supposed to really be talking to. First of all, he's talking to a woman alone, which violates many customs in their culture. But he's also talking to a Samaritan woman, a woman who, by Jewish standards, is not someone that is of equal value in the world. Somebody who is less than. And yet Jesus goes to her and he exposes her hidden story. Things that the rest of the world, people wouldn't really know about her. He showed that he actually knew who she really was. 
He knew the, the shameful parts of her story. And, 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 you know, we live in a world where we love to drag people's embarrassing failures, mistakes, their sin through the mud to celebrate. We do. We live in a world where that happens. And yet that wasn't what Jesus was doing here. And, and this isn't, I, I think most of us would agree, this doesn't sound like a joyful experience where you meet someone random, you don't know them, and all of a sudden they start to unravel the story, the hidden story of your life. That doesn't sound very fun. But yet what Jesus did, he had a way of exposing what was really under the surface and simultaneously not shaming. Not bringing an artificial standard imposed to make her feel like less than a person of value. That's not what he did. What Jesus did is he brought the full weight of the truth, but the full weight of grace to her. He offered her life. He didn't say, you must live in that shame and dwell in it. It must reign over your life forever. No, he released her of that. And he said, actually, I offer you a fountain of life, something that is so abundant that it never stops to flow and it not, never stops flowing and it, and it will fill you and it will flow out from you forever and ever and ever. And what she experienced was that was the, was the acceptance of God, the acceptance of Jesus. And with joy, what did we see? She went out and began to invite others to meet this Jesus. She said, this guy knows everything about me. He came and talked to me. He knows everything about me. Is this, is this the one? Is this the Messiah? You see, what Jesus exhibited was, was something that was unbelievable. It was, it was sacrificial. You see, the God of the Bible actually exudes joy, lives out joy, and brings joy to people's lives. He, in, he embodies this enduring and sweet contentment. He's satisfied in himself, not, not by himself, but by seeking to give life to others. You see, the mind of Christ that Paul is directing our attentions to is not a fragile mind. It is not weak. Jesus was not wrapped up in himself. He, he wasn't consumed by himself and who he was. He was bent toward others. He is the truest picture of humility. He didn't lift himself up. Nor did he debase himself in, in some foolish way. Instead, he thought of himself less as he lived his life. This is the embodiment of joy. No longer comparing your life to his or her life. No longer seeking to be better than others. No longer immersing yourself in your, your own failures and imperfections. No longer filling your life with passing pleasures. You see, what Jesus frees us to is, is to a life of joy. By being not only the source of joy, but the ultimate example of it. And then he invites us into this. Which brings me to the final point. Uh, but before we, before we move into our final point, I want to direct our attention to verse 5 one more time. And now in verse 5, Paul says something very significant here. I think that it's easy for us to miss. He says, have this mind, the mind of Christ, among yourselves. But then he says this, he says, which is yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is yours. It's yours. You can take hold of this possession. 
Jesus is, or Paul is telling us, is that Jesus has actually given us his mind. Something that we can possess. Something that we can hold on to and cling to, and it can renew us and restore us. God is offering us the joy of Christ. He's offering you himself. The, the mind of Jesus Christ is available to you. So this is a, a strange thing even to think about, that, that we could actually take on. I mean, we, we've heard about downloadable minds, you know, the pursuit of, of the singularity. Perhaps you haven't heard this. This is a very exciting new initiative, you know, that we might be able to download our minds into, you know, an artificial physical form. And, and no, nobody's heard about this. I'm, I mean, okay, well, I mean, this is a, a dream and aspiration of many is that we'd be able to download our mind into another physical being of sorts of our own creation. This isn't necessarily what Paul is talking about. Um, but what he is talking about is that we can actually have the mind of Jesus Christ in us, guiding us and leading us and restoring us and renewing us into, the, into his image. What, what he's talking about is being possessors of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in us fully and truly renewing us and making us whole. You see, he's telling us that the mind of Christ is actually available to us. It's a possession that you can have, which means you can actually have the kind of joy that Jesus had and exuded in his own life. By the way, I find that to be a ter- terrifying idea that I could download my mind into another thing. I wouldn't... Sounds scary. You see, Jesus is a fountain of joy. His joy is overflowing. There's no limit to the joy that you can actually have in him. And how do I know this is true? Because he is the perfect example and the source of joy. And his work is clear and it's final. Look, at, look again with me at verses 7 and 9. He said, Paul wrote this. He said, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, God emptied himself for you. He he laid aside his power and his needs, his life. He took the form of a slave. He was a slave by choice. What an unbelievable and foreign concept to us. Isn't isn't this the opposite of what we do with our lives? If if we're really being honest, if I'm being honest, how much of my life, how much of your life is spent trying to control your own world, to have power? How much of your life is spent trying to get the upper hand, to be right with your spouse, with your boss, with your politics? How much of your life is spent trying to get or keep a following to be great, to be approved of by the world around you? How much of your life is spent trying to be comfortable, to be safe? But God decides in his great mercy, unbelievable, to take the form of a slave, to give up his power, to give up his rightness, to give up his greatness, to give up his own safety. The exact thing we try to run from, he ran to. And he subjected himself to others for their good. His needs for yours. His life for your life. His death so that you could actually have life. And and to be clear, this isn't Jesus going to the cross begrudgingly, stomping his feet the whole way up. Jesus willingly died for you. 
Why? Because you, you are his joy. You are the joy of Jesus. You are God's great joy. It's his heart to give you a satisfying, sweet, and enduring contentment for all eternity. As I said before, joy comes from a sincere faith in Jesus who fully thought of himself less. Actually, Charles Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. It will strengthen you for your daily labor. It will beautify you and give you influence over the lives of others. Today, if you're not a Christian, you're being invited into this life of joy. Not a life absent of hardships or trials or or challenges and sadness and difficulty, but a life of joy. A life that's not caught in every wave, in every high and low, in, in fleeting moments, but anchored in someone greater and someone who offers eternal joy. And if, you're, if you are a Christian, I, I hope you've heard the invita- invitation of Paul, which actually he said in a, in a different book, in Romans, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of what? The renewal of your mind. And, and that is in the mind of Christ, as the mind of Christ fills you and transforms you into his glorious image, that you would be able to, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, our our minds are in constant need of renewal. We are to be refreshed by the mind of Christ, which which is yours for the taking. He has given himself to you completely that you might be renewed, that you might be restored in him. And I'll remind you that the mind of Christ is not bent inward on itself, but it's bent upward and outward towards serving God the Father by fleshing out the gospel in this world. It's bent upward and outward, not inward. Would you please pray with me? Father, uh, because your son was brought low, you have highly exalted him. And you have bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, your son, every single knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess and will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to, is the Lord to your glory. Father, we bow, therefore, before him. We lift him up. We lift him up who was made low. We ask that in him, and in him only, we find our joy. We pray this in his name. Amen.